Mugham again was kind of the cry of the Koch voter. The Koch voters were the ones who said, there is something going on in the city. There's something wrong. We need to push back against these forces. Softness on crime, all these things are things we have to push back upon. And Ed Koch started the pushback. Welcome to Acton Line, a product of the Acton Institute for the Study of Religion and Liberty. I'm Eric Cohn, executive producer. If money is the mother's milk of politics, then rhetoric is its currency. And few political characters of the late 20th century had a sharper wit than former New York City Mayor Ed Koch. Consider this gem from Koch. If you agree with me on 9 out of 12 issues, vote for me. If you agree with me on 12 out of 12 issues, see a psychiatrist. Over his career in politics... Koch found himself sparring with numerous people, politicians and celebrities, and even, occasionally, the voters. To be sure, Koch saw this as part and parcel of his role as a political figure and elected official. As he said, you punch me, I punch back. I do not believe it's good for one's self-respect to be a punching bag. But Koch also saw his role in picking political fights as having a larger purpose than his own political advantage. He was a stalwart defender of the Jewish people in the state of Israel and a tireless booster of New York City. In a new essay in the February 2023 issue of Commentary Magazine, Tevi Troy looks at five battles Koch picked and the bigger reasons for them. In conclusion, Troy finds Koch, quote, was at his best a happy warrior. In this episode, I speak with Tevi Troy, a visiting fellow at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University, about Ed Koch's life, legacy, and the lessons we can learn from him on what battles to pick for greater causes and why. You can find additional resources in the show notes for this episode, as well as find previous episodes of Acton Line on our website at acton.org slash actonline. And if you like this program, you can help us reach even more listeners by sharing it with a friend and leaving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. We welcome your comments as well. Act in Line is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Tevi Troy is a visiting fellow with the Mercatus Center's Program on Pluralism and Civil Exchange. He's also a senior fellow at the Bipartisan Policy Center and served as the Deputy Secretary of the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services from August 2007 through January of 2009. His latest book is Fight House, Rivalries in the White House from Truman to Trump, which was named as one of 2020's top political books by The Wall Street Journal. He has a Ph.D. and an M.A. in American Civilization from the University of Texas at Austin and a B.S. in Industrial and Labor Relations from Cornell University. His essay, Ed Koch, Ten Years Gone, which we'll be discussing today, appears in the February issue of Commentary Magazine. Tevi Troy, welcome to Acton Line. Hey, thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. And I'm always eager to talk about Ed Koch. So before we get into the story of the fights that he picked, uh, which is the, the substance of the essay, tell uh, people who may not be as familiar with uh, Ed Koch. I'm, I'm the son of a New Yorker. I've heard plenty about Ed Koch in, uh, in my time. Uh, tell those who are listening who don't know so much about him, who was Ed Koch? 
Well, Ed Koch was a New York politician. His career started in the late 60s, early 70s. And he liked to call himself a liberal with sanity. Maybe some people would call that a Reagan Democrat or a neoconservative. But he was on the left side of the spectrum, certainly at that time in American politics. But he was against the excesses of the left. And in 1977, he was a congressman from a district in Greenwich Village. And he decides to run in a race, a primary, against five other Democratic candidates, including the incumbent mayor. And the lineup in that race was kind of an all-star team of some of the best-known people in New York politics, even some in American politics, because they were, they were very well-known. And they represented different aspects of the New York coalition. There was an African-American, uh, there was a Puerto Rican, there was kind of an old-line liberal, there was a radical leftist, there was the incumbent mayor, and there was Ed Koch. And after the six-person primary, which Koch sort of wins narrowly, he, he, I say sort of wins because then he had to go into runoff against Mario Cuomo, and then he has to run again against Cuomo because Cuomo runs on the liberal ticket because the Republican candidate doesn't really make much of a difference in New York City in, in most elections. And so then Koch wins the election and starting in 1977, he becomes mayor of New York and he's mayor of New York for 12 years. And in those 12 years, he was kind of a mainstay in national politics, both because of all the things he was doing in New York from a policy perspective, but because he was a very active personality. He always had a good quote for the newspapers. He was ubiquitous in New York media. And so for those who don't know, Ed Koch was mayor of New York from 1977 to 1989, a consequential time in American history. And he made himself known not only to New York, but to the entire country. So the one of the first things that comes up when you search for Ed Koch is that he was famous for asking the question, how am I doing? How am I doing? How am I doing? Constantly, yeah. It's, what What was his motivation for this? I mean, is it, is it just kind of a rhetorical device to him? Or was he really, you know, is this the kind of person who's seeking that kind of retail feedback on the job that he's doing as the mayor of New York City? Ed Koch truly cared what the voters thought. He didn't always agree with them, but he cared what they thought. And he famously wins his primary to become the or the, the election to become a congressman to begin with, which is what launched him on the road to the mayoralty, by outworking his opponent. His opponent was kind of a uh, famous waspy New Yorker uh, who had three names, and Ed Koch just went to the subway station every day and greeted voters. And at the end, he said, the man with two names beat the man with three names. And that was kind of his way of being showing that he was a hard scrabble up-and-comer son of immigrants who was willing to fight for everything, but also was willing to press the flesh. And I think how by doing was a rhetorical form of pressing the flesh. He went out there and he wanted people to know that he's interested in how he's doing the job as mayor, which some of his predecessors, particularly John Lindsay, who was very arrogant and very full of himself, uh, the, the, his predecessors didn't have that sense. Koch wanted to know how he was doing. He was willing to make adjustments and it showed that he, he cared. And I think uh, anybody in New York who, whether you liked him or didn't, you recognize that he was a guy who cared. What kind of changes transpired in New York City over the time that Ed Koch was the mayor? Well, the number one thing that transpired is hard to get a metric on, but New York kind of got its mojo back. He's, the I Heart New York campaign started around then. He talked about New York as a great place to visit. He constantly sold New York. He was really into all the great things that Manhattan had to offer, whether it was the restaurants or the theater or the New York Times, which uh, was his, his beloved paper, although it often frustrated him. And so number one is that New York had its mojo back. Second, when he runs in 1977, New York is facing bankruptcy. 
Uh, New York was spending way too much money and was not paying its bills. And there's a famous, famous headline in the New York Daily News when Gerald Ford, who was the Republican president, was not willing to bail out New York unless New York made certain financial reforms. And the headline, which I think mischaracterizes the issue a little bit, was Ford to NY drop dead because Ford wasn't going to guarantee New York's loans, again, unless New York made some significant fiscal reforms. Well, Koch gets in there and he says, we're going to make those significant fiscal reforms. And he gets New York back on the pathway to being fiscally solvent, which was huge. I also, there there was kind of a sense uh, then, as there is a bit of today, that there was a softness on crime and crime was rampant and getting out of control. And I wouldn't say that Koch got the crime issue completely under control because New York was still a, a pretty dangerous place to be in the 80s. But he did start with a tougher on crime, more pro-police approach that then Giuliani picked up on and accelerated when Giuliani becomes mayor in the 1990s. So he, he starts this kind of backlash against the softness on crime that, um, that, that really harmed New York, especially in the 1970s. There's this famous story of a liberal judge in New York who gets mugged and he announces in his courtroom that he's been a proponent of soft on crime policies and he wants to take the perspective of the criminals into account because he sees them as the victims and even though he's been mugged he's not going to change change his approach one iota and from the back of a courtroom an old woman yells mug him again (laughs) mug him again was kind of the cry of the Koch voter. The Koch voters were the ones who said, there is something going on in the city. There's something wrong. We need to push back against these forces, whether it's bankruptcy, insolvency, uh, crime, rampant crime, uh, softness on crime. All these things are things we have to push back upon. And Ed Koch started the pushback. Well, I imagine there's also an intersection here with the uh, tradition of the neoconservatives. Of course, the famous saying being that a neoconservative is a liberal who's been mugged by reality, and the cousin of that, that a conservative is just a liberal who's been mugged. Uh, so maybe this judge, even despite being mugged, doesn't become a conservative. You you get that sentiment, as you just described, from the voters of, you know, when people get tired of this stuff, they are willing to support uh, policy changes that maybe they might otherwise not have been all that enthusiastic about. Yeah, I mean, look at San Francisco or Seattle or Portland today. I mean, these were jewels of American cities at one point. And you look there today and, and they're horrific. I mean, they're, they're like some dystopian nightmare. And Ed Koch never would have stood for that. He would never have tolerated it. He would not allow that to happen. And uh, you know, he kind of kept New York on, on the right path while he was mayor. As for the point about the neoconservatives, it, it is interesting. Koch never became a Republican. He was a Democrat in his bones. He was always going to be a Democrat. But he was willing to call out Democrats when they were in the wrong. And he tormented Jimmy Carter in 1980. He didn't endorse Ronald Reagan. In fact, he said, I never voted for Ronald Reagan, but I loved him. But he tormented Carter so much, especially on Carter's Israel policy, because Carter was pretty rough on Israel, that um, that Carter at one point grabs Koch at a fundraising event and says, you have done more damage to me than any man in America. So um, having Koch on, uh, on your the opposing side of you is not a good thing to have. 
I, uh, I do want to jump into some of these uh, rivalries and battles that he picked, but something that you said a moment ago sparked a thought. Uh, the way that you talked about Ed Koch as being a booster of New York City, um, of you know, uh, talking up how great New York was, and even as I was going through uh, some quotes from uh, Ed Koch uh, throughout his career, you know, one of the more striking ones, which I know was during his time uh, running for governor of New York, where he says, have you ever lived in the suburbs? It's sterile. It's nothing. It's wasting your life. And people do not wish to waste their lives once they've seen New York. Uh, this rural thing, I'm telling you, it's a joke. Um, so even boosting New York lifestyle at the expense of his own political interests. And in my mind, I contrast that to um, some of the recent mayoralties that New York has seen, where uh, Bill de Blasio seems to be the antithesis of that, um, if not only maybe just crystallized to me as a Yankees fan uh, through the idea that um, the man was a Red Sox fan. Um, And I'm just skeptical of anyone to be a true booster of New York City if he's cheering for the Boston Red Sox. But you certainly can see a disparity in how Bill de Blasio felt about the city. And just from reading these quotes from Ed Koch, how he felt about the city. Yeah, it's a good point. And I'm a Yankees fan as well. But let me say this. Bloomberg was also a Red Sox fan. But he didn't let it affect his ability to boost New York, whereas de Blasio had such a negative view on on New York and on America in general that he really was never able to be that. And I got to say, Ed Koch would have hated, hated, hated the de de Blasio tenure as mayor of New York. I mean, he just would have disliked every aspect of it. And de Blasio was a relatively minor figure when Koch died back in 2013. But if de Blasio had, had had his mayoralty while Koch was alive... Uh, I think Koch would have tormented him throughout it, and deservedly so. I want to read a passage here from your essay in Commentary Magazine. Uh, When Koch died in February 2013, he asked that the words of the murdered journalist Daniel Pearl be put on his tombstone. My father is Jewish. My mother is Jewish. I am Jewish. This might have surprised many people who thought of him both as an entirely ethnic and an entirely unreligious figure. But Koch's Jewishness was a key factor in determining many of his primary targets. People who did things or said things that were either offensive to Jews or damaging to Israel or both. So I think this segues into uh, the first um, fight that he uh, picks that you document in your essay here with uh, Bella Abzug. Tell us about that. Yeah, well, well, first, let me back up and just say thank you for reading that passage. And I'm glad that we're doing this podcast with Acton because Koch's religion was so important to his worldview and to his approach to things. And as I say in the passage, Koch was not a religious man. I mean, he reveled in eating not kosher food. He had a weekly Saturday lunch with his aides. I mean, there, there was no Jewish law. And I say this as an Orthodox Jew. There's no Jewish law that I'm aware of that he actually complied with. I mean, it was not his thing. But his Jewishness was such a part of his soul, his part of his essence. And he really, it, he couldn't separate himself from it, nor, nor did he want to. Now, Bella Abzug was also Jewish, but she was a radical leftist, perhaps socialist, maybe even communist. And she was hostile to Israel. Uh, and Ed Koch was the opposite. Koch was a big Israel booster and was always looking to defend Israel. And Abzug writes this letter, joining this letter, um, against sending certain arms and specifically planes to Israel. And Koch sees an opportunity to not only defend Israel, but go after a rival. And he takes, he writes his own letter in favor of the arms to Israel. And he takes the two letters together 
absolutely against Israel and his for Israel, and he uses his congressional franking mailing privileges to send it to every Jewish group. And Bell Abzug calls him up, Irate, what are you doing to me? How can you do this to me? And you know, Koch recognized that she was on the wrong side of this Israel issue and was going to torture her over it. There's another story I love to tell about Koch and Abzug that I, that I did not include in the piece for space considerations. But at one point, Abzug runs in a race, and in that race, the returns come in from her own district, and she does poorly in her own district, uh, surprisingly poorly. Uh, she ran under what the typical Democratic margin would be in that very liberal district. And Koch is asked about this, why she did so poorly in her own district. And Koch famously said, her neighbors know her, <laughs> which I thought was, was uh, brutal and telling. So Koch was willing to call out the far left radicals in the, the Democratic Party. And Abzug was one of those six people that ran in that very tight primary that got Koch's start as mayor in 1977. And none of them got below 10 percent and none of them got above 20 percent. So six people in that very tight span. Uh, but uh, Koch was in the top two, along with Cuomo, and that's what got them to the, the next level. So uh, Abzug was uh, just this outspoken, outlandish, radical, and it was a question of whether her politics or her hats were more outlandish because she wore these very uh, noticeable hats. And um, she's one of the people who I think her reputation has not increased over time. And, and one of the points of my essay is now 10 years after Koch's death, the people with whom he had these rivalries or these fights, in general, their reputations have gone down. And I think subsequently, Koch's reputation should go up because he chose his enemies wisely. Yeah, that... Uh... Again, a passage from the essay here. After losing the 1976 Democratic primary for Senate to Daniel Patrick Moynihan, she, Bella Abzug, finished fourth against Koch in the mayoral race and never held elective office again, um, which I think is a theme that we'll see here as we go through some of the other people that he had these uh, uh, fights with, um, that he was quite effective in uh, what he did uh, in fighting with them, not just for policy ends, but uh, to the detriment of the careers of some of these others. This dovetails into uh, the beginning of the next paragraph. Uh, Koch did not like Abzug before the race, but he developed his deep distaste for Mario Cuomo as a result of it. Uh, tell us about his uh, relationship and his fight with Mario Cuomo. Well, Mario Cuomo, unlike Abzug, who was a radical leftist, Mario Cuomo was more a traditional liberal. He's to the, the left of uh, where I am and to the left of presumably where you are. But um, he, he, was, he, was not, he didn't have this kind of urban ethnic sense of... Um, hey, there were some problems with liberalism. He was kind of straight down the line liberal. And he was very smooth, and he had the ability to speak very well. And he runs against Koch in this primary in 1977, and Koch was widely rumored, well, he was, he was a bachelor, he was rumored to be gay. Never in his lifetime did he say, I'm gay, or come out of the closet. So you know, there, there's still this discussion of whether he was or not. The New York Times tried to out him uh, a couple of years ago. Uh, but So Koch chose not to um, divulge his own sexuality, and I think that's you know, your God-given right as America to make your decision on, on that kind of issue. But Cuomo's people, and we still don't know who, and we don't know how many times it happened, but they put out this very ugly slur that I'm, I'm loath to even say on the podcast, but it was vote for Cuomo, not the homo, which again is disgusting, horrible language. And um, at the time, it was really seen as politically career ending to be tagged as being gay. And Koch is understandably unhappy about this terrible slur. And he blames Cuomo, I think, with reason for it. 
And he also, I think, particularly blames Andrew Cuomo, who is Cuomo's son and one of his campaign aides, for this particularly uh, unpleasant thing that is done. And Cuomo, uh, Andrew Cuomo is another person whose reputation has plummeted in recent years, in large part because of his own disgusting uh, activity with women, um, and also, I think, because of his horrific behavior in the coronavirus crisis. So uh, Koch and Cuomo have this rivalry. They run, as I said, three times against each other for that one mayoral race in the primary, in the runoff, and then in the general election where, where Cuomo takes the liberal ticket uh, running against the Democrat Koch. Koch beats him each time, but Cuomo doesn't go away. He becomes the lieutenant governor of New York, and he runs to replace Hugh Carey, the governor of New York in 1982, a a race in which Koch also enters. And this is seen as a battle of the titans, Cuomo versus Koch once again. And this time, Koch doesn't win. And in large part because of some of the, the quotes that you mentioned about the sterility of the suburbs and how terrible rural life is. And he, he criticizes Albany, which is the city in which he would have to live should he become governor. And Cuomo beats him. The upstate voters don't like the way that Koch insults them. And there's some supposition, and Koch certainly embraced this, that the city voters, the New York City voters, don't want Koch to leave as mayor of New York because he's doing a good job. And at least that's how Koch rationalized it in, in his own mind. And so Cuomo wins that race. He becomes governor. He becomes a perennial potential candidate for the um, the, the presidency, uh, but he never actually runs. They keep calling him Hamlet because he can never decide. But Koch works with Cuomo while Cuomo is governor, but he doesn't like him. And he admits he doesn't like him, but he recognizes that sometimes in politics, you have to work with people you don't like. Again, in a quote that I will censor mildly on um, on his sexuality, which, again, I think is in- instructive to Ed Koch's character, uh, quote, Listen, there's no question that some New Yorkers think I'm gay and voted for me nevertheless. The vast majority don't care and others don't think I am. And I don't give a blank either way. What do I care? I'm 73 years old. I find it fascinating that people are interested in my sex life at age 73. (laughs) It's rather complimentary. But as I say in my book, my answer to questions on that subject is simply blank off. There have to be some uh, private matters left. Uh, Which is, I mean, again, to... Uh, especially put in the context of the time, as uh, you illustrated there, um, that is kind of a, a remarkable disposition on such a serious issue in a way that was you and in the way that it was used to attempt to slander him. Um, it it really does, and I think it illustrates well one of the points that you make, overarching in the piece about you know, he picked these fights for a reason. Um, often not just for his own personal ends, but for uh, policy ends or for causes like the state of Israel that were larger than himself. So there was a there was a reason behind a lot of it and a very clear and I think defensible reason behind it. Yeah, it's a, it's a great point. I mean, he wasn't doing this for fun, although I think he enjoyed it. He was doing it because there was some political or policy advantage to it. And I personally got to know Koch later in his life, and he and I went to Florida together in 2004 to campaign for George W. Bush against John Kerry. In every single venue, every time we went, he said, I'm supporting George W. Bush, even though I don't agree with him on a single domestic issue. I can still hear him in my head saying it. He said it every time. But he thought the issue of terrorism and the issue of support for Israel and America's role in the world were paramount. They were more important than the domestic issues with which he disagreed with Bush. And he he just didn't think Kerry was the right leader for America. And I was proud to campaign with him in Florida. And uh, he and I were both pretty happy when Bush won that race. 
So you described earlier his uh, uh, back and forth with Jimmy Carter again, once again, over the issue of the state of Israel. And feel free to add anything else there that uh, you didn't earlier. But it also segues into another one where uh, Israel and his uh, Jewishness is is underlying the rivalry with uh, Jesse Jackson. Um, so you talk more. Uh, feel free to add anything else on Jimmy Carter, but also then on on his uh, battle with Jesse Jackson. Yeah, I'll, I'll just say one point on Jimmy Carter, which is Koch does reluctantly endorse Carter in 1980, but he says that he only does it with the understanding that Co- that Carter has made certain promises to be more pro-Israel in his second term, and he thinks that if Carter violates those promises. He should go to hell. Literally, he should go to hell if he violates the promises. And so I make a kind of arch comment in the piece that given Carter's proclivities on Israel, Carter's probably lucky that he didn't win because he clearly would have violated the pledge and uh, be consigned to that place that Koch perhaps cursed him to go to. So, um, but in terms of Jesse Jackson, I don't know if your listeners know who Jesse Jackson is. I mean, he's, he's not famous today, but he was huge in the 1980s. I mean, you could not read a newspaper without hearing about Jesse Jackson. He runs for president twice in 1984 and 1988. For people who don't know, he was an aide to Martin Luther King, who was there the day that King got shot. And some people say he kind of um, played up his role after King's assassination, that he wore the shirt for a week afterwards that had King's blood on it. The question is, was he actually there when it happened? Did he actually get the shirt? Did he smear the blood letter? But anyway, he makes himself into a figure in the the 1970s and 80s, a very famous, famous person. But he has a very complicated relationship with both Israel and the Jews in general. And he is recorded on, in an interview with a black journalist, dismissing New York as Jaime town, which is a terrible slur about Jewish people. And Koch once he hears this, there's just no forgiving. I mean, you cannot say those kinds of things about Jews and be have Ed Koch as your friend. And the anti-Israel stuff in the, the Jackson platform, he was very pro-Palestinian at, at a time when um, uh, it was not as trendy on the left uh, to be pro-Palestinian as it is today, but he was very, very pro-Palestinian. And Koch sees this guy as a real danger. And in 1988, there's a, what appears to be a tight race. Dukakis, Michael Dukakis ends up winning it relatively easy, but it's not clear at the beginning of the race what's going to happen. And the New York primary is important. And Dukakis is running. And Al Gore, who is seen as the kind of moderate Democrat from the South, from Tennessee. And Jesse Jackson, who's the, the most liberal and radical in, in the race and a bit of a rabble rouser and also very anti-Israel, is running in this race. Ed Koch goes all in for Al Gore. He strongly defends Gore, and he takes on Jesse Jackson at a time when many people are reluctant to take on Jackson because there are some sensitivities in taking on a a self-proclaimed civil rights leader. And Koch, in some people's minds, goes too far. He's relentless in his criticism of Jackson, and neither Jackson nor Gore win that primary. It goes to Dukakis, and Dukakis eventually wins the, the nomination. But there is some sense that black voters in New York soured on Koch because he was so hard on the Jackson issue. And also there were some uh, there were some ugly racial incidents in the 1980s in New York that were not Koch's fault, but that, that Koch got, got some of the blame for, uh, in, in large part due to another rabble rouser, Al Sharpton. And so Koch loses in 1989 the Democratic primary 
for the mayoralty to David Dinkins, who is himself African-American. And so there is some sense that he went so far in the anti-Jesse Jackson attacks that that might have damaged his ability to stay on as mayor. But I don't think Koch had any regrets because he saw Jackson as a danger and a threat and somebody who would use really offensive language to uh, describe Jews and uh, was very negative on Israel. So uh, Koch takes on, on Jackson. They eventually have some kind of reconciliation, but it's kind of half-hearted. Koch actually did befriend Al Sharpton. They were actual friends, but, uh, but, but Koch and Jackson never really had a strong relationship. I have to add here the uh, famous Ed Koch quote from when he loses uh, in the primary for what would have been a fourth term as mayor of New York. When he was asked if he was going to run again, his answer is no. The people have spoken and they must be punished, which <laughs> is just a delightful like it, it, you can't help but chuckle at that. That's great. You know, It's classic Ed Koch, right? I mean, it's funny. So it makes you laugh. It's egotistical because he had no shortage of ego, uh, but it but it bespeaks an essential truth, which is he thinks the people made the wrong decision in going with Dinkins. And the people recognize they made a wrong decision because they were even willing to vote for a Republican, Rudy Giuliani, four years later, because New York seemed to have gone off the rails in those four years when Koch was moving things in a better direction. And then Dinkins basically says, forget it. And he's not going to be for policing reforms. And he's not going to uh, stop uh, the riot in Crown Heights in a way that I think Koch would have done. And so with Dinkins, it seems like the, the city's out of control again. And that's when you have the opportunity for Giuliani and Giuliani becomes the mayor. And look, for those people who only know Giuliani from frankly, his embarrassing conduct in the Trump administration and, and after the election and his you know, dripping high, uh, hair dye and his awful press conference. Rudy Giuliani was a formidable character in American politics from 1993 to about 2008. He was the mayor of New York, seen widely and universally as a successful mayor of New York. He had his critics, but he was seen as a successful mayor of New York. And in 2008, when he runs for president in the Republican primaries, He's seen as a likely front runner, and nobody thinks John McCain is going to win that election in 2008. Giuliani has the strategy, the Florida strategy, where he is going to be the guy. Florida is his firewall. He's not really going to compete in New Hampshire or Iowa because he thinks Florida is the place because all the New Yorkers who've moved south uh, like Giuliani are going to support him. It doesn't work, right? The strategy falters, and I don't think anybody has tried the let's wait till Florida strategy since. And I think it's uh, as, as political strategy, it's, it's flawed. But there was a real serious consideration that Giuliani would be president, uh, or at least the Republican nominee, in, in 2008. So Giuliani was a serious person, uh, and he has a, a very solid tenure as mayor of New York. And that's just different than the person who he is today. And if somebody I know who uh, is very smart in New York politics and actually knew Giuliani, he said that Giuliani is a different person when he has a stable relationship with a wife or a woman uh, than he is when he is single and unmoored. And, and we see this, that there's just, he's had multiple divorces and when he's alone and without someone in his life, he acts worse than, than when he has a stable partner. I've, I've thought about this uh, occasionally that for someone who uh, last year or this year is just able to uh, buy an alcoholic beverage for the first time, uh, having them think about the fact that in the year that they were born, almost without dispute, the most respected political leader in the world was Rudy Giuliani. And then having them process through exactly what you described, the knowledge of you know when they've been cognizant of what's been going on in the world of the last few years of their life is just so much harder to, uh, to bring that together. But I always 
always remember my father telling me about the end of the uh, the Dinkins administration. I presume it would be the New York Times, but the New York media saying that, you know, you can't blame Dinkins all that much because the city is ungovernable. And then over the course of the next uh, two terms that a mayor has and Rudy Giuliani, uh, the city becomes as livable as it has been in a long time. Uh, and you mentioned earlier the idea that, you know, the uh, the GOP didn't matter much, you know, a, a, um, uh, Cuomo running on the liberal ticket is the Republican didn't uh, didn't matter. And uh, in no small part, I would think, because of not just Ed Koch's three terms as mayor, but because of um, his still public presence, uh, the Republican candidate did matter in New York in uh, in the 1990s with Giuliani. Yeah, Giuliani, who is socially very liberal, is able to win the New York mayoralty twice as a Republican. Bloomberg also wins once as a Republican, but also as an independent um, and, and in the sense of them, with both of them, there's a sense that they weren't actually kind of national Republicans. Neither of them uh, fit in with the, the social policies of the, the Republican Party at a, at a national level. But uh, things were just so bad in New York in the early 1990s that re- New Yorkers recognized that there needed to be a change. And Giuliani looked like the guy who was ready to provide that change. And he did. And again, uh, you know, I, I think he had a very successful mayoralty of New York, and he was willing to take on these tough issues of crime and welfare reform and education, and New York became a better city. You, know, you mentioned that your dad said New York had become ungovernable, and that's the, the title of a famous book by Vincent Canato, The Ungovernable City, about the, the mayoral terms of John Lindsay, who was a, a Republican, but a very, very liberal Republican. I mean, he was thinking of running for president on the Democratic ticket, and uh, he kind of let New York get out of control, and it's really the Lindsay vision of governing that later Ed Koch and Rudy Giuliani and Bloomberg are running against. They're saying there, there is a way to govern the city. We know how to do it. You just have to be rational. You know, as I said, Koch said he was a liberal with sanity. You know, you could be a liberal, but you need to take certain steps to make sure that the garbage is collected and that you don't give in on everything to the unions and that you actually police the streets and those are the, and you pay your bills. And those are things that that can make the city governable. And, and it's, it is doable. It's not easy, but it's doable. Well, since we've been talking about New York City in the 1980s, uh, listeners will probably assume it was inevitable that we will get to the uh, last person we'll mention from your piece that uh, Koch had uh, a, a tete-a-tete with, uh, which, of course, is Donald Trump. Uh, tell us about his uh, backs and forths with Donald Trump. Yeah, I, I find the Koch stuff with Trump super interesting. And I got to give a shout out to Maggie Hamerman, whose book, The Confidence Man, about Trump. Didn't really teach me much about Trump's presidency, which you, know, you and I lived through it. I was reading the newspapers every day, so I know what was going on there. But the history of Koch in his early days in New York and also specifically his fight with, with Trump uh, was super fascinating. And look, Koch has a big ego. Trump has a big ego. And they kind of saw through each other in a way. And particularly, I think Koch saw through Trump, and I have this great story in the piece about Koch is going to meet with Trump at Trump's office. And the person who has met with Trump previously guarantees to Koch that at some point in the meeting, Trump is going to get a phone call and he's going to act all tough in the phone call and say, 40 million, I won't do it for less than 80 million or something like that. And just sound like a tough guy and hang up the phone. And it's obviously a fake phone call, and it's a ploy that Trump uses with all the visitors. And so Koch sees right through this nonsense, and he has no patience for it. And he was willing to criticize Trump. And 
you know, Trump is, in some senses, thin-skinned, but Trump also likes to fight. And the two of them would go back and have these one-liners and one-upsmanship contests in the press. Uh, but, but the fact of the matter is that Trump got that woman uh, ice rink built when nobody could get it done before. And um, Trump's building projects were part of New York's resurgence in the 80s. And uh, I think Koch just wasn't going to take crap from Trump and push back on him. And, and in a way, they were successful together because uh, Koch, I guess, wouldn't indulge Trump. And the things that Trump did that were successful in terms of the, the building projects of the 80s, I think, made New York uh, a better place. So um, I guess in, in in their fighting, I think there was some actual uh, success for the people of New York. And, and I would also say just that um, Trump, uh, Trump certainly didn't like Koch, but Haberman argues that Trump modeled himself a little bit on Koch. And the Kind of the ego and the ubiquitousness and the uh, the fighting style. Uh, Koch disliked Trump, but he—I mean, Trump disliked Koch, but he learned a lot from him. I can't remember who I heard say this, but um, the importance of that New York-centric understanding of Donald Trump that a lot, I think a lot of the country lacked when looking at him. It was best described to me, and I, I wish I could remember who said it, that if ev- almost everything Trump says, uh, if you preface it with um, Donnie from Queens, you're on the fan, um, it, it makes a lot more sense because he embodies that kind of New York personality in a way that, as you point out, the, in, in his own way, Ed Koch embody that kind of New York personality as well that um, we see uh, caricatured often in television and film. Um, but I think we have uh, we're, um, poorly understood in the public space, at, at least when it came to Donald Trump, which is not to say that there were not plenty of legitimate criticisms of Donald Trump. Absolutely, there were. But I think having that New York centric understanding of him helps inform some things that I think, to me, uh, left people baffled. But I think being having a better understanding of New York, having family from there, I think I got a little uh, quicker than some others did. Yeah, and just to explain to some of the listeners, the fan is WFAN, which is kind of the sports talk network of New York. And people would call in. They would be Donnie from Queens. I happen to be from Queens myself. And and they would call and they would say these kind of man-in-the-street observations. And people would go, yeah, yeah, I agree with that. I agree with that. And Trump kind of had those man-in-the-street observations. And, you know, in a way, Giuliani also kind of had that perspective of, of course, we should arrest criminals. Of course, we shouldn't put up with rampant crime. Of course, we shouldn't let the unions run rampant. Of course, we should call things what they are. And and Koch was very much of that school, even though he disliked Trump for understandable reasons, that he disliked Giuliani, although I think they had a slightly better relationship. Certainly in person, they would, they would get along, although they took shots at one another in, in the press. But... There is that kind of New York regular guy sensibility that I think was embodied nationwide in the Reagan Democrats, the people who thought the Democrats had gone out of control in the 60s and 70s, the McGovern Democrats had gone too far, and, and they were willing to push back. And those are the people who helped elect Ronald Reagan in 1980 and 84, and then Bush in, in 88. And just one more point, that Bill Clinton kind of recognizes that and says, hey, we've got to be able to appeal to those people. And that's how he brings the presidency back to the Democrats in 92 and 96. You mentioned that you got to know Ed Koch uh, personally later in his life. Um, tell, tell us a little bit about your experience with him. What was he like in person and what did you learn from him? I was a White House aide in the 2000s and we were doing uh, a we, we had to have a U.S. delegation to the anti-Semitism conference by the OSCE, which is the Organization of Security and Cooperation in Europe. 
And we were looking for somebody who could stand up in favor of the Jewish people and, and fight back against anti-Semitism and would have no holds barred on it. And I immediately thought of Ed Koch as the perfect person to do that. It helped that he was a Democrat, so we could show that there's bipartisan interest in pushing back against anti-Semitism. And Koch headed the delegation, and I was on the delegation. I went to Berlin with him, which was a real trip. He had no fear. He was willing to call people out if they were anti-Semitic, and he had no patience for anti-Semitism. And he, uh, one of the things I will always remember is a meeting with Ed Koch and Natan Sharansky. And you know, I was in the room too, but uh, the two of them just saying, there's no, there's no patience, there's no tolerance for, for anti-Semitism. So after that, I stayed friends with him. We, as I said, barnstormed in Florida together for, for Bush against John Kerry in 2004. He thought Kerry was a total phony, had no patience for Kerry. And then I would go visit him in his office in New York. And he always had these great recollections and great stories of his time as mayor and the people who kind of irked him a little bit. And, the, and it, was, it was kind of in those meetings that I had the germ of this article to hear the way he was willing to criticize people who deserve criticism. But he was also a very warm-hearted and generous person. I wrote an article in City Journal about his mayoralty. I've done this about other mayors, uh, about the de Blasio tenure, which I didn't think much of, uh, and the Bloomberg tenure, which I thought more of. And when I sent the piece to Koch, he said that I captured him and what he was trying to accomplish more than any other article that, uh, that he's ever seen written about him. And I, I treasure that comment to this day. What is uh, a lesson that you think readers of uh, not only your your piece in Commentary Magazine, but people who are interested in uh, Ed Koch and his career. Wh- what is a lesson that you think we can derive from uh, Ed Koch's public life? I think everything you need to know about Ed Koch can be learned from the famous story, The Emperor Has No Clothes. You know, there's this emperor, and he is convinced by these flim-flam artists that he's wearing this beautiful gown when, in fact, he's wearing nothing. And everybody in the in the country uh, sees him walk down the streets, and they're all saying what a beautiful gown he is. And there's only a little kid who's willing to say, hey, this guy's naked. This guy has no clothes. Ed Koch is the little guy who's willing to say, this guy's naked. And he wouldn't put up with uh, woke nonsense or... Um, people not saying things accurately or changing their language to not reflect reality. Uh, Koch was willing to call it as it was. It was a very New York sensibility. There were tons of guys on the street who were like that, had that same sensibility. But Koch was willing to go and uh, roll up his sleeves and shake people's hands at the subway station and run for mayor and win. And he did it three times. And New York is better for it. We give you the final paragraph of this essay and commentary. There have been significant progressive efforts to diminish Koch's posthumous reputation. The New York Times ran a 5,000-word piece asserting that he was gay and implicitly criticizing him for not coming out of the closet while alive. The piece also twice made the point that leftists were questioning whether Koch's name should continue to adorn the 59th Street Bridge. But the passage of time will likely add to, rather than diminish, Koch's reputation. He was, at his best, a happy warrior, and remembering him as such makes him look even better now that's pretty good i like that that's great fantastic who wrote that (laughs) tevi troy is a visiting fellow with the mercatus center's program on pluralism and civil exchange and a senior fellow at the bipartisan policy center his essay ed koch 10 years gone which we've been discussing today appears in the february issue of commentary magazine tevi thank you so much for coming on act in line thanks and thanks for all the things that Acton does As always, thank you for listening. 
Our team loves putting this podcast together for you. It's encouraging to hear from our listeners. Feedback is incredibly important to us because it lets us know what you'd like to hear more of, including the kinds of topics you're interested in most. If you have comments, feedback, or ideas for a show topic or interesting guest, you can email our team at producer at acton.org. Until next week, for Acton Line, I'm Eric Combs.